Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Acts chapter 6. We're going, to, we're going to do the whole chapter today, verses 1 through 15. Our context from Acts chapter 5 is this. Peter and John and the other apostles that have been arrested by the Sanhedrin, Peter and John at least, maybe other apostles, I'm not sure, were jailed that night for the trial the next day before the Sanhedrin, and the angels sprang them. They got out and they started preaching the gospel again, so they were rearrested by the Sanhedrin, flogged and told don't preach the gospel anymore, and the church began multiplying like crazy. There were people being brought in from the suburbs even to, to experience the healing miracles of the apostles. So that, that was basically chapter 5. Now we're going to go to chapter 6, and we're going to talk about the choosing of the seven servants, some people call them deacons, of the early church in Jerusalem. And then we're going to see how one of those seven, Stephen, was arrested. We start with verse 1 in Acts 6. In those days, as the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. In those days. In what days? Well, as the NIV Study Bible points out, a considerable period of time may have transpired since the end of chapter 5 because that would give time for trouble to arise. And then that, isn't that what always happens when revivals break out? Because right on the heels of a revival, you will find trouble, people trouble. Well, the troubles that arose from within, we see, we'll see in the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6, there was a division between the Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews, which had to be healed. And then we had trouble from without, persecution. Stephen was falsely arrested and judicially murdered. Now, notice that the early church only consisted of Jews. There were no Gentiles. Now, there were Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. A Hellenistic Jew was a Jew that was born in land outside of Palestine, outside of the Holy Land. They spoke Greek and not Hebrew. They had a Greek mindset more than a Hebrew one, whereas a Hebraic Jew spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. He preferred Jewish culture and customs, and he was probably born in Palestine. So you see there was a, how shall we say, an ethnic conflict between these two groups of Jews. The Hebraic Jews tended to look down on the Hellenistic Jews as an inferior class because they were foreigners. That's inevitable. And so they had a problem. Now, what distribution were was being talked about in this verse, is being talked about in this verse. The widows were overlooked in the daily distribution. Remember, they were holding everything in common. The apostles were managing the money. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira laid the money at the apostles' feet. And then the apostles would distribute the money, probably through agents, to take care of people's basic needs. As they were there, most of them outside of their home villages, as they had gone to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, they had no way of making money. They had no jobs. And they needed money. Now, the early church took care of its widows. In Acts 4.35, it is said that the proceeds of the sale of land was laid at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. First Timothy 5.3, verses 3, Paul tells Timothy to support widows who were genuinely widows. This is a long time afterwards. The church kept doing this, taking care of its widows. First Timothy 5.9, no widow should be placed on the official support list unless she's at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband. So taking care of widows and taking care of people who didn't have any money in the church was something that the church always did. And apparently it was the apostles who were doing it because the money was laid at the apostles' feet. And I'm sure they, they, delegated, they tried to delegate the authority to somebody. And somehow the foreign Hellenistic Jews got overlooked. And so they complained. They complained to the apostles. And apparently their 
complaint was real. It was not just griping unnecessarily. It was a genuine, genuine complaint. Now, this verse also says that as in those days, as the number of the disciples was multiplying, this idea of the church growing is all the way through the book of Acts. Started out about 120. Let's let's read the verses here. Acts 1:15. During those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The number of people who were together was about 120, and said, and that was probably that was uh, right before the falling of the of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Then the numbers jump up to 3,000 in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. His message is Peter's message, Peter's Pentecostal sermon. Now, the next time we see a number is in Acts 4, verse 4, we see the number has jumped to 5,000 at least. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. That that might be a total of 8,000 if you add that to the 3,000 that was converted on the first day of Pentecost, or it might be a sum total of 5,000. It's not clear, but the point is the church is growing. The numbers seem to be lost track of at this point because we go to the next chapter, Acts 5, verse 14, it says this, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, lots and lots and lots. I guess they couldn't count anymore. This is good news. Whenever the church multiplies, it's good news. In verse 1 here, the number of disciples was multiplying. They weren't called Christians then. They were called disciples. They were called Christians later. I forgot, somewhere in the book of Acts, it mentions they were first called Christians. I can't remember right off the top of my head where that was, but they were called disciples right here. Now, this problem of the Hellenistic Jews being overlooked. In the midst of all the miracles and all the evangelism, there was trouble. Human flesh always tends to get in the way of things. Human flesh has always got to be dealt with in the middle of every revival. These Hellenistic Jews were foreigners, and foreigners generally tend to get overlooked in a foreign country. I lived in a foreign country for over 20 years in China, and although they treated me like a king and my wife like a queen, they were very, very nice. But nonetheless, you got the language barrier. You don't, you don't, you don't have the full rights of a citizen. You're worried about the government tapping your internet, and you're worried about getting arrested for mentioning Jesus. It's just not quite the same as being in the good old USA at home. It just happens. You're going to get you. You're going to get overlooked at a foreign country. You're not quite as secure, and so the Hellenistic Jews got overlooked. Notice that wealth was being managed from a common fund. Remember, the disciples were holding everything in common, and this is, isn't this what always happens when you hold things in common? People start fighting over the common fund. It happens all the time. It is human nature. Adam Clark said this is a great argument that the early church's community of goods was temporary. That first burst of evangelism because of the temporary emergency of all those pilgrims being in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, they had to do it. But sooner or later, you're not going to be able to minister things for people's family living expenses and commons. It will always, and I repeat, always lead to at least trouble and probably disaster. I used to like to read the stories of these early communitarian experiments, such as the Oneida experiment. I think that was in New York. We had a bunch of these in the early 1800s in America. They always failed. Every last one of them failed because people aren't made to live that way, to share your family's goods with other families' goods. God didn't design it that way. Pretty soon after they start sharing goods, they start sharing each other's wives. That's the next step. But anyway, we go to verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. 
The twelve, of course, refers to the twelve apostles, now including Matthias, who has taken place of Judas, so it's literally the twelve now. So they all got the whole company of the believers there and said, this is not going to work. We can't deal with this distribution problem, this complaint of the Hellenistic Jews. Now, they want to keep preaching so they don't have to handle financial matters, as the Holman Christian Study Bible puts it, the NIV Study Bible puts it, wait on tables. We don't want to give up preaching to wait on tables. And when you read it that way, it sounds like somehow waiting on tables is inferior. Well, as we see here, it was not a small a, a small matter. This was a big problem. It went to the division of the church, the unity of the church. It's not just waiting tables. And, and, and even if waiting tables was not an issue, was not involved in an issue of unity, waiting tables are still important. I mean, after all, we got to eat. So we need to get past this problem of somebody's ministry is better than the others. It's just the apostles were good at preaching and healing people. That was their ministry, and other people are good at waiting tables, and nobody is better than anybody else. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. Now, the word here for that wait on tables or handle financial matters, the translations are so, are so different in the two English translations. I wonder what the Greek says. I, ha I didn't check it. But the NIV Study Bible says that the Greek word there is a verb which comes from the noun deacon. So that's why some people insist on calling these seven people that are eventually chosen as deacons, although that's disputed. We go to verses 3 and 4 in Acts 6. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. Who's speaking here? One of the apostles doesn't say which one. Could be Peter. He seems to always be in the lead here. He says, we, we apostles, will pray you deal with this distribution problem. Now notice, who does the dealing with the problem? The, the apostles took leadership and said, deal with the problem. But who eventually chooses the seven men? The brothers do. Because the apostle says, brothers, select from among you. Who's doing the selecting? The brothers, not the apostles. The apostles didn't say, I want you, 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 and you to be a deacon. No, the brothers chose the men of good reputation. They were full of the spirit that means, well, some people say it's, they, it's because they were able to do miracles. But Jameson Fawcett and Brown disputes that and say miracles has nothing to do with serving tables. And I agree with that. I don't think it was that they didn't need to do miracles in order to serve tables. So it just means basically being under the control of the Spirit and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so forth. And wisdom, you got to deal with cultural conflicts. That takes a lot of wisdom. I know. I lived in a cross-cultural context for over 20 years. Yes, sir. There's all kind of things that can go wrong through miscommunication. So this was a, an important ministry. It's not just a table-waiting ministry. It's important to choose these seven men. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told the whole church to choose them. He wouldn't have said they need to be of good reputation. He wouldn't have needed to say, say that they were, needed to be full of the Spirit. He didn't. He The apostles would not have... Uh, required that they be full of wisdom, it was important. We go to verse 5 in Acts chapter 6. The proposal pleased the whole company. So they, that's the whole company, that's all the believers that were gathered, and how they were gathered that many is hard to say. I don't know how they did that. Unless they were living in a tent city outside of Jerusalem, which I suspect they were. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, a proselyte from Antioch. Notice all of these chosen servants had Greek names. Very smart. 
the church there chose seven Greek people because it was the Greek Jews who were having who had the complaint and were feeling slighted. And so to it was a political thing in the good sense. They did a politic move here. They chose Greeks to assuage their complaint. And notice this, the whole company they chose, the whole company, not the apostles choosing, the whole company, consensual government, as is was typical in the early church, just like when they chose Matthias to replace Judas. Now, of these seven that were chosen, only two received further notice in the book of Acts. One is Stephen. He's going to be mentioned in the very next, in three verses from now as he's arrested, and then the next chapter he's going to be executed. So he's very famous. And then Philip, in Acts 8, a couple of chapters from now, he was preaching up in Samaria, and a bunch of people got saved, and then John came up from, I think it was Peter and John, came up from Jerusalem into Samaria, and they prayed that they received the Holy Spirit, just like in, at Pentecost, they did a bunch of miracles, Simon Magus committed simony, tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit, that story, Philip was involved in that, and of course later on he left, he was going down south of Jerusalem on the road to, to uh, Egypt, ran into the Ethiopian eunuch, led him into the Lord, and baptized him. So that was Philip. And also, he's also mentioned again in Acts, in addition to Acts 8, in Acts 21, verses 8 through 9. The next day we left and came to Caesarea. That's we meaning Paul and Luke and his fellow companions. They came to Caesarea where we entered the house of Philip the evangelist. So Philip was living in Caesarea on the coast. He was one of the seven. That means the seven people who were chosen to, to handle the table matter here. And stayed with him. In other words, Luke and Paul stayed with Philip, who was one of the seven, as Luke calls him in Acts 21, verse 8. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So that's who Philip was, the evangelist of Samaria and the father of four virgin daughters who prophesied. The rest of these seven names are lost to history. Now, Stephen is named first because he was a leader. He was the most prominent. He was the first person, the first Christian to suffer martyrdom. Of course, Jesus suffered martyrdom, but I mean, after Jesus, Stephen was the first one. So he's sort of important. He's mentioned first. There was, Nicolaus was a proselyte from Antioch. That's significant because we got Antioch mentioned. That was the center, the headquarters of the mission to the Gentiles. After the church began to see that the church was not only for Jews, but was also for the whole world, for all the nations of the world. Well, we got a proselyte, a proselyte, somebody who adopts some of the Jewish customs, depending on what kind of proselyte it was. There's proselyte light and proselyte heavy, proselyte of the gate and proselyte of righteousness. But anyway, he was some kind of proselyte, and he was a Gentile that had taken on the Jewish faith to some extent, and he was from Antioch, so that's perfect. It's a bridge to the Gentiles. And, of course, that means he was a Hellenistic Jew. Now, some people say that Nicolaus, one of the seven that's mentioned here, was one of the ones that started the sect of the Nicolaitans mentioned pejoratively in Revelation 2, verse 6. There's no evidence for this. It's just speculation. I would hope that one of the original seven deacons in the church didn't start a heresy. I would hope not. But at any rate, there they are, chosen by the church. We go to Acts chapter 6, verse 6. They, that's the brothers, the believers, the disciples, had them, the seven, stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So you see here a typical pattern in the New Testament. The apostles ratify the choice made by the brethren. That's what elders were when Paul sent Titus to Crete to set in order what was there. 
they laid hands on the apostles. They recognized the homegrown apostles, the, excuse me, the homegrown elders. They recognized them. The church chose them, and the apostles ratified their choice. You know, we need to watch about authority in the body of Christ. Apostles had authority, especially at first to start churches, but they always left the church. They left the church grow on their own, and the church governed their internal affairs, and they chose their own elders. The apostles just ratified that choice, just like here. They ratified the choice not of elders, but of deacons. Now let's talk about this practice of laying on of hands. We're going to look at three uses of that practice in the Old Testament, and then we're going to look at four uses of that practice in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, laying on of hands would confer a blessing. For example, in Genesis 48, remember when Jacob was blessing his 12 children there at the end of the chapter? Confer a blessing, that's the first use. The second use, to transfer guilt from sinner to sacrifice. This is the famous scapegoat provision, legal provision, Leviticus 1.4. He, the priest, is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering so it can be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Excuse me, that wasn't a scapegoat, that was a burnt offering. So the offeror lays, is not the priest, the offeror lays his hands on the burnt offering. So his sin would go from him to the offering. So the transfer of guilt from the sinner to the sacrifice, that's how they used to lay hands on in the Old Testament. Second use. Number first use, to confer a blessing. Number two, to transfer guilt to the sacrifice. Third use in the Old Testament. Laying out of hands was, a commission, was used to commission a person for a new responsibility. Numbers 27, 23. Moses laid his hands on him, on Joshua, and commissioned him as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So there's a transfer of power, and the laying of hands was a symbol of that transfer. Now we go to the New Testament, and we see that laying on of hands is used again. It's used in, for, to, to heal. Acts 28.8, Publius, his father, was in bed, suffered from fever and dysentery. Paul went into him, and praying, and laying his hands on him, he healed him. Again, that shows connection between the person praying and the person receiving the healing. It's a point of contact. It was used in the New Testament. Also, I didn't. I don't have the scripture, but how about in James? If any among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church, and he will anoint him of all. Does it say lay his hands on him? Maybe not. Maybe that's why I don't have it. But at any rate, laying on of hands was a common thing in the New Testament. There's one verse that, that there's the idea of touch involved. Mark 1:41. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. So you see that touching, that laying on of hands. So that's the first use in the New Testament for healing. Laying on of hands is used for healing. Second use of laying on of hands to impart a blessing. Mark 10, verse 16. After taking them, the little children in his and Jesus' arms, he, Jesus, laid his hands on them and blessed them. There's an impartation of blessing. Third use of laying on of hands, ordaining or commissioning someone to an office. Now, we already have this in Acts 6, 6, the verse that we're on now. The apostles took the seven nominees for servants, prayed, and laid their hands on him. That's, we see that in our, our current verse. We also see this in Acts 13.3. Then after they, the brothers in Antioch, had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them. That's Paul and Barnabas. They sent them off on the first missionary journey. Commissioning, commissioning, ordaining, or commissioning. 1 Timothy 5.22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sins. In other words, don't recognize an elder, commission an elder, if you will, by laying your hands on him too early. Many other translations for lay hands, they have ordain or appoint, but, that, but the fit way you physically symbolize that appointing is by laying hands on someone. Uh, that's the third use of laying on of hands, ordaining or commissioning someone to an office or to a to a 
ministry service. Here's the fourth use of laying on of hands, the imparting of spiritual gifts. Acts 8.27, Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. That's in Samaria. Acts 19.6, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began to speak in other languages and to prophesy. That's the falling of the Holy Spirit upon the believers there at Ephesus. I think it was 12 of them, if I remember correctly. Not many. But, they, but anyway, Paul laid his hands on them. 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Now, that might have been the laying on of hands in order to commission him as an elder, which would be our third use. But it's closely related to the impartation of a spiritual gift, which is basically being an elder. Second Timothy 1.6, Therefore I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Again, that's the same idea. All right, so let's review here. In the New Testament, we have laying on of hands for healing, number one. For to impart a blessing, number two, to ordain a commission in someone, use number three, and to impart a spiritual gift, use number four. Now, I've already mentioned this. I'll mention it again, that the seven that were commissioned, laid hands on, it's disputed whether they were the first deacons or not, according to my NIV study Bible. Some people say they were not deacons. They were kind of like proto-deacons, and they were replaced by deacons later. The NIV study Bible suggests this. But Jameson Fawcett Brown, on the other hand, says it is, quote, unquote, universally admitted that they were deacons. Well, not universally, obviously, because the NIV study Bible raises questions about it. It doesn't matter. Let's just call them deacons. Be done with it. Acts 6, verse 7. So the preaching about God flourished. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Priests. These are Jewish priests. The members of the Jewish temple order of that system that crucified Jesus and was getting ready to persecute the apostles from synagogue to synagogue and to kill them. They became believers. Now, that's miraculous. These priests, they saw the light. God sovereignly saved them. They became obedient to the faith. Obedience is a part of faith. You have faith, you repent, and you obey. It all goes together. And I realize all kinds of theological controversies come on this. Well, you, do, you obey. Does that mean that you you have to be sanctified a little bit before you get justified. Well, if that's the case, and then in which case, it's not justification by faith alone anymore, is it? And I remember in the in this controversy, I remember Grudem was watching a video about Groom, and it's the Lordship Salvation controversy. If you say that obedience is a part of getting sa getting saved, you get, you end up in problems because pretty soon you say you got to be sanctified a little bit before you're justified, and that becomes salvation by works. So here, people who say no, you got to be obedient. God, Jesus has got to be Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. You've got to be obedient to the faith. Well, I just think what it means is that you believe. In fact, the word obedient is a past, is in, in one context is from patho, which means to, to trust in, to follow, to believe in. It's so totally related to faith that really it's the same thing. You're obedient to the faith, that means you believe. We don't need to get any kind of controversy over this. They just believed. We're not talking about how sanctified they were. They just believed into Jesus for salvation. These priests did. Now we've talked about the gospel spreading already. Now we're talking about, as we go further along into the history of the early church, the preaching of God is flourishing. Luke gives a series of progress reports all through the book of Acts. I've already read some of these. I'm going to read them all together again. I've got 10 places where the church's numbers are mentioned. Acts 1.15, Peter preached 120. Acts 2.41, those who accepted were 3,000. That's on the day of Pentecost. Acts 4.4, 4, shortly thereafter. 
Many of those who heard the message believed. The number was about 5,000. If added to the three, that's 8,000. If included the three, it's 5,000. Acts 5.14, believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, crowds or multitudes of both men and women. Numbers are lost there, but it's a lot. Acts 6.7, this is the verse we just looked at. The preaching about God flourished. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly as well as a large a large group of priests. Notice that it's not just a group of priests, but a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and it increased in numbers. doesn't say how many, but just says it was increasing. Acts 12.24, Then God's message flourished and multiplied. Acts 16.5, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Acts 19.20, In this way the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. Acts 28.31, Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with full boldness and without hindrance. Now, I mention that to show that with the power of the Holy Spirit working, the church should have no problem in expanding. We need to constantly think about the church expanding, the progress of the gospel. We need to quit saying, oh, the black helicopters are going to come and all, oh, everybody's going to fall away from the God, from the faith, and the church is going to be a miserable little rump in the middle of the wilderness of the Antichrist rules all the world. We need to forget all that stuff and just think about the expansion of the gospel. Notice that the division between the Hebraic and Hellenistic Jews did not slow the progress of the church. They dealt with the problem, and the church kept right on growing. You want to... You got problems with division in your church? It will slow the progress of the gospel in your church unless you heal the division. And all churches will have division. They have to be taken care of. There's so much forgiveness in Christ. You can hear the most incredible stories of forgiveness in Christ. I just saw one on a Lifetime movie. It's incredible. The, uh, the forgiveness that was shown. So, if there needs to be forgiveness, let there be forgiveness and let the gospel be preached and let the gospel continue to expand. We go to verse 8 in Acts chapter 6. Stephen, that's one of the seven, the first one mentioned. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now you notice he was not an apostle, he was a mere deacon. But even the deacons were doing miracles. I say that because so many people today say, well, you've got to be an apostle before you can do a miracle. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Stephen was not an apostle. Some people say, yeah, but... The apostle laid hands on Stephen. That's how he had the ability to do power. They, they kind of have an apostolic succession of miracles. They complain about Catholics they have an, who have an apostolic succession of church leaders, of elders, priests. They don't like that. But then when it comes to miracles, no, we've got to have an apostolic succession. An apostle's got to lay his hands on Stephen before Stephen can do miracles. Nonsense. The apostles laid their hands on Stephen to wait on tables, not to do miracles. Now, this Stephen is the first example of somebody who was not an apostle doing miracles, according to the NIV Study Bible. Let me give you some examples. Acts 2.43, Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Acts 3.4-8, Peter along with John looked at him intently and said, Look at us. And this is where Peter and, gold have said, Peter, and gold, Peter and John said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Rise up and walk. Those were two apostles. Then Acts 5, verse 12, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. Okay, so yeah, the apostles started out doing miracles, but it didn't stop with them. They kept on. Stephen was not an apostle, and yet he worked miracles. Not only did Stephen work miracles, but also Philip. He was also one of the seven that was mentioned. He did miracles. Acts 8, verse 6, the crowds paid attention. This is in Samaria. 
with one mind of what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. So you see, non-apostles did miracles too. We now move to Acts chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Then some from what is called the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Carinians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, came forward and disputed with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. The Freedmen's Synagogue, we don't know anything about this, except through this reference. They were people who had been freed from slavery, apparently. The word freedman indicates that, or it could be their sons, according to John Gill. They came from this different Hellenistic areas, as I mentioned here, again, to show that this is a persecution uh, from the diaspora. Again, we recall that many Jews from outside Palestine had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. They probably had a separate language because Jerusalem Jews wouldn't accept them, and that's why they had their own separate synagogue called the Freedmen's Synagogue. It's kind of like in China. You had English-speaking churches, and you had Cantonese-speaking churches, and you had Chinese-speaking churches because the language problem was a bodaciously big problem. But at any rate, they came from Kyrene. They were Kyrenians, and I'm using that Greek pronunciation. I looked that up. Some people say Cyrene. The Greeks would have said Kyrene. Probably, Carini, maybe Carini, maybe. But that was, as you look at Alexandria, right there on the coast, north of Egypt, right there on the Mediterranean Sea, you go west a little ways and you end up in Carini, a big city on the Mediterranean coast. Actually, you go, Alexandria is on the coast of Egypt, you go west, you hit Carini, you go a little bit further west, you end up with Carthage. So that, and the Alexandrians were, were from Alexandria, that great city in northern Egypt founded by Alexander the Great, where the great library was that had all the Hellenistic learning, and in fact where Plato and Aristotle's doctrines got transmitted after Greece fell, the, all their teachings and documents and so forth went to Alexandria, so that was a big Hellenistic uh, area. Then we got Cilicia, which is on the northern shore of the, sea, of the Mediterranean Sea, that's at the northeast corner of the sea. It's where Tarsus was, it's where Paul was from, and then Asia is on the west coast, the little Roman province there on the west coast of Anatolia, present-day Turkey. So they're, they're from all over the Roman Empire. They're there in, in Jerusalem, and they're just as obnoxious as the local rabbinic Jews were, arguing with Stephen, but Stephen, he put them down. These, this Freedman synagogue could not stand up against Stephen's wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Again, Jesus said, when you're Taken before men, do not worry about what you're going to say, because the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. And Stephen was preaching by the Holy Spirit. There's a big difference, folks, between people who preach according to human wisdom and people who preach by the Spirit. One is boring and one has effect. Now, the NIV Study Bible, as well as John Gill, have an interesting speculation here. Some of these people in the synagogue were from Cilicia. What if Paul the Apostle was one of those in that Freedman synagogue who was arguing with Stephen? Now, wouldn't that be ironic? As Paul ends up being one of the greatest preachers of the, of the gospel that ever was. Now, they couldn't deal with Stephen speaking here. Notice that Stephen also, not only did he speak by the Spirit, he did miracles by the Spirit too. So that, that made his word even more powerful. Adam Clark says the Freedman Synagogue couldn't handle Stephen with logic, so they handled Stephen with force. They beat his brains out with stones. And Adam Clark also points out Stephen was well-versed in Jewish history, and that helped him. If, if, when we get to Acts 7, the next chapter, you will see he would just give a running summary of the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament very, very well. So he gave a great evangelistic witness. He did miracles, and they killed him anyway. But 
We all remember Stephen today. I don't know if we remember the Freedmen's Synagogue. I doubt anybody remembers them. Acts chapter 6, verse 11. Then they, that's the Freedmen's Synagogue, per persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now Stephen is not going to be blaspheming Moses and God. How, what did they take of Stephen's words to twist to make it come out this way? Well, here are some options. NIV Study Bible suggests one option, that the Freedmen's Synagogue accused Stephen of claiming that the worship of God was no longer to be restricted to the temple. Well, actually, that's true. And so, well, how do we know that's true? Acts 7, 48 through 49, this is Stephen. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet said, says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is my resting place? Now, what Stephen is saying is saying, he was saying the temple is not the be-all and end-all of the worship of Yahweh. The worship of Yahweh should go all over the earth. So we shouldn't confine it to just one temple. In other words, this is kind of a hint that the Gentiles are going to believe in Yahweh too. Well, that would be easy to twist that and say, see there, he's against the temple. And since he's against the temple and Moses' law established the temple, he's against Moses. And since he's against Moses, he's against God too. And so therefore they can say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Here's another possible thing they could have twisted. This is according to John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. They could be complaining because they claimed that Stephen was abrogating the Mosaic law. Acts 6, verse 13 and 14. They, the Freedmen's Freedman Synagogue, also presented false witnesses who said, This man does not only speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law, does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place in the law, and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus as Nazarene will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Well, they, they were probably referring to all the times that Jesus spoke against the traditional law of the Pharisees. They did that everywhere, all through the gospel. He's constantly complaining about the traditions of men, the traditions of the Pharisees, the oral law, if you will. And so it would be very easy for the Freedmen's Synagogue to say, see there, he's against Moses. No, Jesus was not against Moses. He was against the Pharisees' perversion of the law of Moses. And so they twisted what he said and falsely accused him. And you notice they persuaded men to say they couldn't just get up and say it to his face. They had to go around and start a movement against him. King James, I think, has suborned, suborned some men, which means that gives the idea, yeah, the King James has suborned, which means they paid money to get people to speak against Stephen. I don't know if that, the Greek word means that. The Holman Christian Study Bible just has persuaded. But at any rate, these people were nasty, and they twisted Stephen's words put him before kangaroo court, and got him killed. They judicially murdered him. In fact, they called him blasphemous. He's speaking blasphemous words. That's the worst charge that any Jew could make against another Jew. Acts 6:12. They, the Freedmen's Synagogue, stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, dragged him off, and took him to the Sanhedrin. The people is the common people, the elders, the rulers probably in the Sanhedrin, scribes are the people, party of the Pharisees mostly, they were private teachers of the law, and sometimes those categories overlapped, of course. And so whenever you see these words, I've got to the point, I just say the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders came, dragged him off, took him to the Sanhedrin. Doesn't sound like Stephen came voluntarily. He was dragged to the Sanhedrin. In other words, he probably went against his will. Acts 6, verses 13 through 14. They, the Freedmen's Synagogue, also presented false witnesses who said, This man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. 
For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. This Nazarene, notice the implied sneer there, because Nazareth was a nothing burger of a city, a kind of a dumpy, out-of-the-way cultural backwater. So they got to throw that in there. And said that he would destroy the customs, as I said earlier, because he preached against the Pharisees' traditions. He says that they were that they said that Stephen was therefore against Moses, and that he would destroy this place. Actually, what he said was, he said what Stephen said was, is that God doesn't need a place like that. He need because the earth is his footstool, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. The Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. He didn't say he was going to tear down the temple. They didn't say he was going to destroy this place. They twisted his words. And Stephen did not have a lawyer to stand up for him, to defend him, cross-examine the false witnesses. And so the charges stuck. These were similar to charges brought against Christ. Remember in Matthew 26:61, this is when the Sadducees, uh, Jesus' accusers, sub- suborn people looking for false witnesses. And they got one who said, of Jesus, this man, Jesus said, I can demolish God's sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. Jesus never said that. He said it was going to be torn down. <laughs> he said in John 2:19, Jesus said, destroy this sanctuary, talking about his body. I will raise it up in three days. He was talking about his body. He wasn't talking about the stone temple. Stephen may have quoted Jesus' words here. It doesn't say that he did, but he could have. And that could have enraged the mob, just like Jesus got him upset. There is a question whether they purposely misunderstood Jesus' words in Matthew 26 or whether they misunderstood Jesus' words. You could say the same thing about the, the synagogue of the freedmen. They might have purposely misunderstood or they might have accidentally misunderstood because of their rage and their bigotry and their bias. They didn't really understand properly. It doesn't really matter. They didn't give Stephen a fair shake. They judicially murdered him. Now, when they said that Jesus wouldn't start speaking against this holy place, it could that holy place could be the city of Jerusalem or it could be the temple, as Gil and Clark mentioned. I think it's probably the temple. And the law, of course, as again, it wasn't the Mosaic law that Stephen was speaking against. We go to verse 15. We'll finish up the chapter. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Again, we wonder how people in the Sanhedrin how Luke found out what the people in the Sanhedrin were thinking. I suspect it's because of people like maybe Gamaliel, maybe Nicodemus, maybe Joseph of Arimathea. They were in the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea became disciples of Christ later on. They probably reported it. I suspect, I don't know, I haven't studied that. That's just my speculation. Stephen had the face of an angel. Jewish rabbis often said this about eminent men distinguished by God, as Adam Clark says. Stephen was truly a man full of grace and power. Acts 6, 8, as the verse I've already read, said Stephen, full of grace, full of power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So you see, two table waiters, two table waiters, Philip and Stephen, worked miracles, spread the gospel. One of them became the first martyr of Christ. Don't let, let every, anybody ever look down on the ministry of working tables and saying, well, we're not apostles, we can't do anything. Oh, yes, they could. And yes, they did. And you can too. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with Acts chapter 6. We'll take up Acts chapter 7 in the next audio. In that chapter, we will begin to see Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. The whole chapter, it's a long chapter, is taken up with that defense. And so I'm not going to be able to finish it in one audio, but we'll begin starting in Acts chapter 7, verse 1. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 